So for tonight, the next three steps of the Eightfold Path have to do more with inner work of meditation than the outer work of right livelihood and right speech and so forth. The next step is called right effort. And it's very important in understanding spiritual practice. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian master, one of the greatest ever, and certainly in the last century or so, said that enlightenment is not your birthright. Those who succeed do so only through proper effort. It was an amazing thing for him to say because he became fully enlightened at 17 years old when he went to his uncle's house and said, I wonder what it would be like to die. I think I'll try it. And he lay down on the floor and died and then came back somehow. He didn't, it's hard to know whether he physically died, but it seemed like he died. And he came back with a very different perspective on life. Nevertheless, he, he taught for many, many years and even he said this. Um, there's this Nasruddin story that's slightly related to the topic. <laughs> One day he went to the market with a recipe for some kind of liver and kidney pie or something like that, and he bought this, bought this meat, and he had the recipe in one hand, and he got the, the uh, stuff for his pie in the other hand, and this huge raven or crow saw him walking home and swooped down from a tree nearby and grabbed the meat and, and, uh, out of his hand and flew off with it. And Nasruddin shook his head and said, it won't do you any good, you don't have the recipe. It gets, it gets kind of reversed for us. Most of us, especially living in California as we do, um, are overburdened with spiritual recipes. I mean, how many Dharma talks, and how many spiritual books, and how many raps, and how many retreats, and how many good therapy things, and how many sashins, and how many whatever. And you have the recipe. It's like all the people sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Dalai Lama, pilgrims who'd come from miles and miles on foot from the high Himalayas and to be with the Dalai Lama and Bodhgaya. And he said, okay, you're here and you think you're very fortunate because you have the, the uh, blessings of being in, under the Bodhi tree where the Buddha was enlightened and with all these famous lamas and the Dalai Lama himself and you have the teachings and the sacred um, meditations and mantras and all of these things, it won't do you any good. The only thing that makes it work is if you take the trouble to practice it. All the rest of it is very nice and you might as well watch Dallas or something like that. It's not so different. Maybe you'd learn more from Dallas, I don't know. At least it wouldn't be, wouldn't be pretentiously spiritual. All right, so the question of effort. Effort is central in, in our spiritual practice. Now, traditionally, there are four kinds of efforts that are talked about. The effort to deal with skillful, unskillful things has two parts. The effort to abandon that which is unskillful, and that means abandoning our grasping or our fear or our hatred or anger. It doesn't mean judging oneself or, or resisting it or suppressing it, but it means learning skillful means not to be so caught up in things, not to be so attached. And then the effort to maintain their absence, once you've figured out how to let go of them some. You know, which is, I mean, it's like Mark Twain and smoking. You all heard that. 
When someone asked if he'd ever stopped smoking, he said, sure, it was easy. He'd done it thousands of times. You know? So the second effort is the effort to maintain that abandonment in some fashion. The other two traditional, traditional definitions of right effort are, have to do with that which is skillful. The effort to develop or cultivate or nourish that which is skillful within ourselves. And then the effort to maintain or sustain it so that in some fashion it, uh, it stays with us. One person on the battlefield conquers an army of a thousand. This is from the Dhammapada. Another conquers themselves, and they are greater. Conquer yourself and not others. Dip, discipline yourself and thereupon learn freedom. So it's the effort of learning how to cultivate or generate that which is skillful, which is awareness or loving kindness or caring for the world around you or living more in the present. The effort to abandon the habits, the fears, the things that we get caught in that create suffering and that keep us in, in the murk, in the muck, in the effort to sustain them. And this is wonderful because it's a teaching that can apply very much to our daily life. It's not just a retreat teaching. It's small habits and all the little pieces. Our life is made up of little activities and little pieces and little habits and little ways. And we can begin to work with the way we drive our cars or the way that we relate to people at work or the way we eat, what we choose to eat, and how we, how we set about eating to make those things more conscious, to make our approach to those bear the fruit of greater awareness, of greater attention, of more caring, of more kindness. So you can think now for just a moment, what are a few things in your own life that could well be uh, served by bringing a little more of this, this effort, this effort to pay attention or the effort to let go and abandon. What little things do you do that you could use in some way to wake up more, to awaken? Now, fundamentally, the meaning for right effort can be expressed in a simple way. It's the effort to be aware, the effort to see clearly, to pay attention. That's right effort. And one Zen master was asked, would you give me the essence of the teachings? And he wrote down attention. And then the person said, fine, now would you give me the, the whole teachings, the commentary and how I should undertake it? He wrote down, attention, attention. And they said, isn't there anything else? And he said, attention, attention, attention. That is it. <coughs> to be present, to see clearly. Right effort isn't so much the effort to make the world a different place as it is the effort to discover the nature of this world, of our body, our mind, of this life. Now, why is it hard to make the right effort? Why is it hard to pay attention? It's hard for different reasons. It's hard because we don't want to see sometimes, you know, this idea of be here now and so forth. It sounds good. 
It's not so good. <laughs> it isn't, because what happens when you're here now? Has anybody looked? What do you have to be here now with? Pain. Pain. What else? Boredom. Boredom. Fear. Loneliness. Pleasure. Joy. Beautiful sunsets. Wonderful tastes. Horrible experiences. People being born. People dying. Light, dark, up, down, parking your car on the wrong side of the street. Getting your car towed. All those things, because if you live here, it means you have to open to what Zorba called the full catastrophe. <laughs> and so, sometimes we don't want that. Right effort is the effort to see clearly. This world is crazed. There's war, there's prejudice, there's political prisoners, there's all this kind of suffering that we really need to remember living in Marin because it's, it's really like a kind of ghetto that we live in and we forget how incredibly fortunate we are. I had a, a, someone I knew who wrote a letter today and she's kind of middle-aged and very poor and just gets by doing some sewing and her husband works in a gas station. They live in Florida someplace else and they're related to some people I know. and. Um, they've had a very hard life anyway, and she has some kinds of um, progressive degenerative disease. And then they wrote, and their house was just, they live in not such a nice neighborhood, and their house was broken into, and the few things they had of any value were just stolen. And I thought, God, you know, here I live in such a nice place, and I leave the door open most of the time in the house, and don't worry about it, and have nice things. And we forget how really what blessings we have here. And we forget about the sorrow and the struggle in the world. And so part of the effort is to really wake up and to look in ourselves and at the world around and to, to, uh, to be conscious of it, not just be asleep. Ajahn Chah said there were two, two basic ways of practice, my teacher. He said one way of practice is to be comfortable. And it's valuable. You can sit a little and get yourself quiet. You keep the precepts, and so you don't harm people, and they start to like you. You om at dinner. It's true. You, 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 you chant a little before you eat, or you sit quiet, and everything becomes nicer in your life. It becomes more comfortable and more, more pleasant because you live a good life, and you're more peaceful. The other way to approach spiritual practice is to be... not involved with trying to be comfortable, but rather to be free or liberated. And that way of practice has nothing whatsoever to do with comfort. Comfort may come and it may not. Sometimes it may be terribly uncomfortable. But its goal or its direction is not comfort. Its goal is freedom. It's a wonderful thing and it's the real legacy of the Buddha. So we really need to start to pay attention, is what right effort means, and to see both how fortunate we are and to begin to see the laws that govern the world within which we live. Another friend of mine whose husband is pretty young, he's in his mid-40s, just called me this week and said he had advanced lung cancer and just found out about it. Um, a few days before, and then she called about four days after that 
she asked me what was the lesson in that. She said, you're a teacher, tell me what the lesson is. I didn't know what the lesson was. I said, I don't know, call me later. Maybe I can think of one. And she called back, you know, and, and if, you trust, if you trust people, they generally find out what the lesson is anyway. And she said, I know what the lesson is. And I said, what? And she said, the lesson is to love, to love people while you have them, when they're here. And it was so sweet and so touching because it came in, a, in from a place that she really, really knew it. It's to take care with what we have that's beautiful and nourishing and that which isn't, to abandon it. I read you a passage from Nisargadatta Maharaj, the old Bidiwala who I studied with in Bombay, wonderful old teacher. He sold little Indian cigarettes on the street corner, and he was fully enlightened somehow at the same time. He had these classes. He died a couple years ago. He's a wonderful old man. And someone says, what can truth or reality gain by all our practice? And he uses truth and love sometimes interchangeably. He said, nothing whatsoever, of course. But it is in the nature of truth or love cosmic consciousness, whatever you want to call it, to express itself, to affirm itself, to overcome difficulties. Once you've understood that the world is love in action, consciousness or love in action, you will look at it quite differently. But first, your attitude to suffering must change. Suffering is primarily a call for attention, which itself is a movement of love. More than happiness, love wants growth, the widening and deepening of awareness and consciousness and being. Whatever prevents that becomes a cause of pain, and love does not shirk from pain. That's an amazing thing to say, that love doesn't shirk from pain, that what love wants is not pleasure. It's, oh, you live in Marin, you know about pleasure. It's wonderful, but it gets boring after a while. It does. That there's something deeper, higher, richer that, that is our capacity or our, our birthright or, or our, our deepest need. I don't know what it is, but it's different than just pleasure. So then... What does it mean to make right effort? We touch that, we want that, or we want to discover or open. There are two different approaches or styles to effort, and I've practiced with them both, and I'll put them out, and you can listen and see which seems like it works better for you. One is the Rinzai approach, using Zen terminology, where there is enlightenment, and it's a goal, and you work very hard, you bust your ass, literally, on your cushion or whatever you do, to get to Satori or Kensho or enlightenment. And you really make an effort directed to this goal. And one of the ways of practice in the Theravada tradition that I've done, there are a couple, the Sunlun Monastery, where we'd sit and do four sittings a day of two hours each minimum without moving. The first hour was heavy breathing, where you sat and did as full and deep breathing as you were capable of for an hour. Harder than that, actually. And the side dial, the master was kind of like a football coach, and he'd come around and say, harder, more. Um, 
And you concentrate on it, and you get very concentrated in an hour. If you were sleepy, it woke you up. If you had thoughts, it kind of blasted them out of your head. And by the end of an hour, you were very present. And then the next hour, you continue to sit without moving and use that concentration just to be with what your experience was. It was very powerful. Or the kind of effort in the Mahasi monastery where I practiced, where you sit and walk 15 or 16 hours a day, or 18 if you can. You sleep for four hours and you eat a little bit. You sit motionless, you don't move, even though the sittings were shorter, they were 45 minutes or an hour. And you don't make a movement without paying attention to it. Lift your hand, blink your eyes, blinking, turning, moving. You pay attention to every single little thing. Why do that? It sounds so hard. It is. It's very, very hard. And if you start to do it, all the defilements, all the desires, all the fears, all the reasons that you, that you keep yourself spaced out and in fantasy and don't want to pay attention, they all come at once. And they, it's like this wall. And you just sit, and you just walk, and you do it. And the purpose is to dissolve the sense of solidity of the world. If you pay attention that carefully, and that fully, or that deeply with concentration, and that's next week's talk, is on right concentration, you begin to see that what's solid is not solid, and that what seems as I and other, or body and mind together, starts to dissolve into all its little parts. There are the four physical elements, and the different mental mood states, and consciousness, and hearing, and seeing, and smelling, and tasting, and that's all it is. And it takes the whole show apart. But it takes a powerful concentration and a sustained attention to do it. It really is going through fire. And there's a, even a physical transformation. Your body, um, there's a book I read recently by Irina Tweedy called Chasm of Fire. She's an old Sufi lady who worked with this master in India and talked about her experiences more in the Kundalini metaphor. But it's not so different. It's really sitting through the fire and letting your body and your desires and your fears just burn through you, and you just sit. And after a while, your attachment to this thing changes, and you become much more detached from this that we take to be ourself, this physical body. And you become more detached from the fears and feelings and all of those things. And you start with that detachment, then to see it as it operates clearly, because you're not so incredibly tightly identified as I, me, my body, my mind. It's very powerful. Zen Seshin, Sasaki Roshi, teaches in, in very strict fashion in that way. Or, or Chan Master... Um, uh, Shun Hua, who runs Gold Mountain Temple. He used to have 49-day Chan Sessions in San Francisco. You'd sit for 49 days and you'd sleep sitting up. You'd sleep in your place. I, I never wanted to do it. I thought about it. I've, this is a way I've done a lot of practice like this, and I personally like it. For some people, it's terrible, because they're already tight, and they do it, and it just drives them crazy. It makes them tighter, and it doesn't bring any enlightenment at all. It just brings pain. But for some people, it's a way of practice that works. The effort to concentrate, the effort to pay attention, to bring yourself back again and again and again. It's not the effort of tensing your body, but it's the willingness to sit with anything and keep bringing your mind back, or to walk with anything, to really do that. 
If a person gives way to all their desires or panders to them, says Gurdjieff, there'll be no inner struggle in them, no friction, no fire. But if for the sake of attaining liberation they struggle with their habits that hinder them, they'll create a fire which will gradually transform their inner world into a single whole. So it's one way of undertaking practice. And when you look at how powerful our habits are, and how much we go to sleep, and how much the world really needs somebody to have the courage to say no, or stop, or wake up, or look, or live differently, it becomes very compelling. Now, I know that you're not on retreat, that we live in busy household lives, but this same spirit, this kind, which is just half of the effort I'll talk about, can be brought to your daily life. It can be the effort, I'm going to get up and sit every day, twice a day. I'm going to take the effort to whatever it happens to be in your life that you know is really going to make a difference. So one can bring that effort, and it's a wonderful thing to do. And if you learn to do it, it takes practice. It's really empowering. It brings a certain inner strength with it as well. Now the other approach to right effort, there's actually a bridge to between these two that would be nice to read about. Someone gave me recently this book called Peace Pilgrim about this woman who walked for 20 years around the country wearing her blue jogging suit that said Peace Pilgrim on it, carrying a toothbrush. And she spoke about peace, that you had to make yourself peaceful and the world peaceful. And she never took food unless it was offered to her. She fasted otherwise. And she never took rides until much later in her life. She just walked and talked about peace. And it's her story, and it's a fantastic book. And she said, during my earlier spiritual growth period, right the 10 years she was getting prepared to do her peace walk, I desired to know and do God's will for me. Spiritual growth is not easily attained, you know, but it is well worth the effort. It takes time, just as any growth takes time. One should rejoice at small gains and not be impatient, as impatience hampers growth. The path of gradual relinquishment of things hindering spiritual progress is a difficult path, for only when relinquishment is complete do the rewards really come fully. The path of quick relinquishment is an easy path, for it brings immediate blessings. And when God fills your life, or the truth fills your life, the gifts overflow and bless all that you touch. Well, it's very beautiful what she says. It takes time, just as any growth takes time, and it's not easily attained, but well worth the effort. If you do a lot of it, you get a lot of reward. If you do it slowly, which most of us do, then it's a little more frustrating, because a lot of the reward comes when, when you're much, much freer. It's the way it goes. <laughs> what can you do? It's still worth it. But it talks about both these kinds of effort, that if you're willing to make the effort to really do a lot or let go of a lot or transform your life, then tremendous fruits can come. This week, you can change how you live, how you relate. Or you can take it slower. The other kind of effort is not goal-oriented, to get to Kensho or Satori or enlightenment or dissolve the world, transcend yourself. It's the Sotozen approach. It's the approach that says that you're already enlightened. 
and that all you have to do is live in the moment to be here with things as they are and that is enlightenment it's not something else it's just what's here and the only thing that blocks our enlightenment is all these thoughts that say this isn't enough I want it different if you could just live with things as they are that's all this is it Krishnamurti speaks about it very beautifully and he said it's the truth which liberates and not your efforts to be free that all your I'm going to get this and be that and now I'll be you know I remember when the first interesting meditation practice experiences started to come and I got very excited and my mind started to fill with thoughts again there was these lights that came and things I thought gee this is really exciting because I started to think about what I'd do when I was enlightened and who I would go visit and what I would say and stuff you know? and it's like the ego that part of us wants to take it as a kind of a merit badge or something you can wear around or a degree and it's not that at all it's to live with things as they are to see them clearly and directly and truly in each moment Ramana Maharshi said there are two paths to awakening one is that of self-inquiry where you look to see the main koan is who am I or what am I and you do it through awareness or through whatever training that you can to discover or investigate the body and mind and the other is the path of surrender where you say not my will but thine it's actually the same if you really look at it say okay in this moment I'll be aware of what's here without trying to change it and just see what it is and it's that seeing that you start to see the truth of it that it's impermanent that it's not I me mine it's not self that we're not separate that it begins to reveal its nature this way of effort then is the effort more of surrender of letting go rather than of trying to attain something it's surrender to be in each moment in a balanced way if one is to succeed in anything the success must come gently says Don Juan with a great deal of effort but with no stress or obsession it's rather the effort to be here again and again and again and to see truly that things arise and they pass away that they're born that they die that we don't own anything that none of it is ours our thoughts do you control your thoughts does anybody here have control of their thoughts you know, we think that they're ours you know? <laughs> or our bodies we do a little better with that but not very well if you look at it so the second way there's something I want to read. I've been reading all these books on early child development and <laughs> labor and whatever, and there's a, there's a book that I've come to appreciate very much called Whole Child, Whole Parent. If anyone's looking for a spiritual guide to parenting, it's the best that I've found. It's called Zen and the Art of Throwing a Ball. And it gives a much more Taoist sense of how instead of making the effort to come back again and again and dissolve the world, this is the way of effort which finds the Tao within, within our movement, the way that we live. The self, this self-centered sense of us, knows that freedom has something to do with law and order, but thinks that order must be brought about by willpower. The child shows us that on the contrary freedom comes through subservience to existing order to the Dharma 
through conscious alignment with it. The self knows that freedom has something to do with pleasure, but it thinks it, it thinks, thinks it means feeling good and being above the law is what pleasure is. The child shows us that this pleasure is really spontaneity and that it too is a byproduct of absolute compliance with, or obedience to the law or the Dharma. And here's the story. Once I heard a father marvel, how did he learn to throw that ball so far? I didn't teach him. When did he learn to do this? I didn't even see him do it. Why did he do it? No one in our family is particularly interested in baseball, and yet he did. Everything that father thought was missing might have been a hindrance had it actually been present. The family's interest in baseball, or someone watching him, or anything. Somewhere along the way, in the throwing of a ball, the child had conceived of a possibility of freedom. Perhaps it first came through watching someone else. Perhaps once in flinging a ball, he had let it fly and surprised himself. At any rate, some freedom had been encountered and was now a possibility in his consciousness. After that, as long as he remained unself-conscious, which means undivided, he was able to give his undivided attention to the possibility of which he had conceived. Through his pure desire for freedom and the sense of possibility, certain laws were given the opportunity to gain power over the child. Aiming himself toward a conscious possibility, he became subservient to it. And then through the child's receptive and devoted consciousness, the underlying force of being itself organized and energized and utilized and coordinated everything in the child to express itself in the form of freedom to throw the ball so beautifully. He must have practiced for hours on end, expending tremendous effort, but little strain, because his interest in seeing what was possible carried him along. Confident that what he could conceive of was possible and could be realized, he went at it. Sometimes the ball fell short, but he did not infer that he lacked power. Sometimes the ball went wild, but he did not infer that the thing was impossible or that there was no predictability and all was chaotic. Whatever seemed too hard only showed him that he had not yet discovered the knack. Whatever appeared chaotic only suggested that the order and his oneness with it had not yet been discerned. Sometimes his shoulder hurt, but the very hurt became a guide, directing him into better alignment with the hidden force he did not doubt. He looked at everything for what is and what isn't, so everything taught him until he could throw the ball far, fast, accurately, and with remarkable ease. And he wasn't proud, he wasn't too pleased, and he didn't feel triumphant, he felt grateful. And he didn't feel powerful, he felt surer, and he felt and was freer. It was never that he had his way with the ball, rather through his undistracted, absolutely focused, unself-conscious attention, the invisible laws of physics had their way with him. Through the total submission of himself to the invisible laws, he found both dominion and spontaneity, which he rightfully experienced as true freedom and joy. What a wonderful way to learn. And it speaks to this other meaning of effort 
And it also speaks to a kind of secret about the first kind of effort, which I've used a lot and practiced and gained from in some ways. And that is that in the end, you have to let go, <laughs> no matter how much effort you make and where it takes you. It doesn't take you all the way. Because it's not your effort that makes you free, but your discovery of what's true about yourself and life and its changing nature and the laws of it, that you come into harmony with it, that you become free. And it can be big things. It can be a big satori and a big awakening. Sometimes when you get hit over the head by someone near, near you getting cancer or a near car accident, or it can be little things like this child where you just begin to take your life as a discovery and you start to see what are the laws that operate that make people happy and make them unhappy? What are the laws that operate that make war and make harmony or peace between people? I got a letter from someone recently who'd been in one of these classes asking about the question of enlightenment. It talks so much about precepts and following um, right speech and right action. What about enlightenment? Where does that fit in? Or is it just a system of ethical conduct, Buddhism? The Buddha said a number of times in one very beautiful sutra, he said it quite explicitly, he said, the reason for my teaching is not for merit, or good deeds, or good karma, or concentration, or rapture, or bliss, or even insight. None of these is the reason that I teach, but the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is the reason for the teaching of a Buddha. And all these other things are secondary to it. Secondary to what that child experienced with the ball, or to what the what the old Bidiwala talked about of the movement of love is compelled not by pleasure or not by precepts or not by success or failure, but by learning to grow, learning to open, learning the laws of the world, learning to connect. And there is enlightenment and there is freedom. It's true. It's absolutely true. And you can experience it. You can come to that. It says in the Dhammapada that to live one day and taste very deeply the meaning of impermanence is better to li than living a hundred years and not to touch it. Why could that be so? Because to taste that, even for a moment, means that you see what's true about life and you start to live out of that truth more fully. You become free, which is what we all want most deeply. So I ask you a few questions. Think about these for a moment in right effort. Where are you making too much effort in your life? What things do you do where it's too tight and too hard? Because you need to learn balance. Can you think of them? Where do you try too hard or grasp too much? Where do you make too little effort in your life? Where are you lazy or habitual? What aspect of your life, what aspects could be ennobled or awakened with more effort? 
think about them. Which ones? Where is your life too internal? Where do you shy away out of fear from the world of events and circumstances around you? Where is your life too external? Where you don't sit enough, or you don't take enough silence? You don't listen inside in a deep enough way to your heart, to what you care about. Make it inform your life. To listen in this way inside is to discover the laws like throwing the ball of right effort in your life. Where do you miss the mark? Practice a little more. What takes more effort? What takes a little less? What takes more solitude? What takes more giving and loving and serving? You actually know the answers to those things. They come pretty easily to us. We just forget to ask. Or we don't want to ask because it means, oh, I have to rearrange my life yet again in some fashion or other. But it doesn't really matter because that's the game. Everything gets rearranged anyway. Either you can rearrange it or you can wait for it to be rearranged. (laughs) And it's also the game to grow. And so you can stall it for a while. If you really drag your feet, you can. But it's not as interesting. This is a question to my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to close. I still have very many thoughts. My mind wanders a lot, even though I'm trying to be mindful. Don't worry about this, he said. Try to keep your mind in the present. Whatever there is that arises in the mind or the heart, just watch it. Let go of it. Don't even wish to be rid of thoughts. Then the mind will reach a natural state. No discriminating between good and bad, hot and cold, fast and slow. No me and no you, no self at all, just what there is. When you walk, no need to do anything special. Simply walk and see what there is. No need to go to a cave or cling to isolation. Wherever you are, know yourself by being natural and watching. If doubts arise, watch them come and go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. It's as though you're walking down a road Periodically, you run into obstacles. When you meet difficulties, see them and overcome them by letting go. Don't think about the obstacles you've passed already. Don't worry about the ones you haven't seen yet. Stay in the present. Don't worry about the length of the road or a destination either. Everything is changing. Whatever you pass, do not cling to it. And eventually, the mind will reach its natural balance where practice becomes automatic and effort becomes effortless. All things will come and go of themselves. Sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. (laughs) Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as you awaken in the morning and continue until you fall asleep.
What is important is only that you keep aware, whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom. Each person has their own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, and some at age 90. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool, and all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You'll see clearly the nature of all things in the world. Many wonderful, strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.